Growing a small business has never been easy. So, how can we build our companies and shortcut the learning curve? By getting advice from the people who've done it before. Everything you need to grow your business is right here. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to the conference room. Welcome to the podcast. I'm joined by my guest today, Brian Stone. Brian has over 20 years of effective senior sales leadership focused on building and scaling mid-stage growth SaaS companies with a track record of scaling companies from 10 million to over 150 million, including having senior leadership positions with organizations like FishMe, RiskLens, and he's currently Chief Revenue Officer of Simulate, an Israeli breach and attack simulation vendor. He's had senior leadership positions in several early stage ventures, resulting in three successful exits, two of which were acquisitions and one was an IPO. Brian Stone, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Simon. Good to be here. Okay, good stuff. So you are the hero of this story. I would like to say if you can tell me a little bit about your own kind of origin story. What you know, how did you get from kind of graduating college to being the chief revenue officer of a leading breach and tax simulation member? Yeah, yeah, thanks. So I guess it started maybe even in my upbringing in in Maine, the state of Maine. I worked on a commercial fisher boat, lobster boat, really. And so learned the early on the value of hard work and getting up at 4.30 in the morning, rain or shine, and trying to pull lobster out of the ocean and then take that to market and sell it. And I think just the number of little holes that I had in my hands, like from the spines of the lobsters, created these calluses. And I still have them today. And so every time I sort of, I'm at this desk job that I've got now, and I, I think back, <laughs> look at those calluses on my hands. And I think that's where I came from and, and uh, how fortunate I am to be doing what I'm doing now. But yeah, school in North Carolina. So going from Maine, I went to North Carolina to get some sunshine and get out of the cold and was aspiring golfer at that time. So I, I tried out for the golf team and I didn't make the travel squad, but I was on the team and got to sort of work on my craft there. But then I realized school was coming to an end and I needed to find something to do. And I, I knew I wanted to get into sales. So I ended up taking a job with a company out of Dallas selling trade show displays. And I was so green and so new. I just didn't even know it was a straight commission job and didn't even know what straight commission meant. So I, like a couple of weeks into the job and I turned to my colleague and I said, so when do we get paid around here? And they said, yeah, you get paid when you sell something. And so very quickly I realized that's the gig and, and you need to get out there and start selling. But I also learned early on there that there's a formula to it. And they basically, there were no CRM systems back then and no databases of people to call. For us, it literally was the phone book. And I had a section of the phone book and a sheet of white lined paper with 60 lines on it. And I knew if I called six, made 60 calls and said the script that, that they were provided, I would book two meetings of the 60 calls that I made. And I, I knew if I wanted to book four meetings, I would make 120 calls. 
And so I ended up coming up with this methodology called book two, C2 every day. And I would book two new meetings and try to see two customers every day. And, and that kept my pipeline full. If I wanted to make more money, I booked four and saw four or some other increment of that. And, and that got me hooked. And I, so I quickly was making six figures. I achieved rookie of the year out of 300 sales reps that year and was off and running and then chased this shiny object into the tech world. This is kind of late nineties and the internet boom and joined an internet company that started off being one thing and then pivoted into something completely different. We ended up selling that company and were rolled up within 90 days to another company that went public. And uh, so I found myself very quickly on investor calls with Wall Street bankers trying to set a, a strike price. And I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and didn't know what a strike price was for an IPO or any of that. But again, it was a great experience and got me hooked on technology. And then a couple of years after that, shortly got hooked up with FishMe, and they were sub 5 million in revenue. And I was referred by a colleague, and he said, Hey, I, these guys have more leads than they know what to do with, and they need somebody like you in Dallas. And would you be open to talking to them? And, and I was investing and doing another startup on my own with another group, but I said, yeah, they're not ready for a full-time salesperson in this other thing. So I'll at least talk to these guys. And one year turned into two years, turned into seven and a half years. And we saw such a great run at FishMe and, and the leadership team was fantastic and ended up getting into management positions there and leading the East Coast team first and then leading North America and then leading the global sales. And we were just right at a hundred million in revenue at that point. So really, really fun run. And Hoping to do it again at Simulate. Great stuff. I think it's interesting when you when you talk about your own kind of origin, if you like, in sales, is this kind of trifecta of having a formula. What do you say to book two C2, right? Yeah. Then having a kind of a background in just sheer work ethic and then figuring out that if you double the work, the likelihood is you're going to double the results. Is that uh, you you think is an accurate summation of that? And is that something that you that, that still informs your philosophy when you're leading a sales team? Yeah, I really do. I think it is. I think every person's conversion numbers may be slightly different. For me, it was 60 calls equals two appointments. And then I knew I would close some percentage of that. Whatever your numbers are, I think it's important to know them as a salesperson. And, and it's different in every role. Like the sales cycle here is different than it would be at another company. But if you look at any professional, whether, you know, most athletic sports and for sure, baseball, everybody knows their on-base percentage. They know their error percentage. They know what their numbers are. They know know what their areas of improvement are, and um, they're constantly trying to improve their, their ratios. I think salespeople are no different, and we really need to understand our numbers and constantly strive for improvement. So yeah, big fan of, of that. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting how, how that also permeates in the online world as well. You know, like when people are talking about percentages of like, you know, course to action or visits or engagements or whatever. So it's interesting where if you look at the kind of sales philosophy or sales model of like the 80s and early 90s, where it was much more considered an art sales now and certainly that's maybe some 10 year 10 sort of 15 years has become much more of a, of a science do you think that that has kind of that sales kind of lost something in the along the way though are, are we kind of losing some kind of flair and creativity or 
or do you feel that this kind of scientific approach is kind of making up for that? Yeah, I, I definitely think you can overdo it. It's, it's important to track key KPIs, the, the key metrics that matter, but, but it can be overcooked like anything else. And at Simulate, we're a very data-driven company, but even we have to kind of keep ourselves in check to say, all right, we're we going to add this other metric. Is that really a nice to have or is that a must have? And so I think it's something we have to keep an eye on because there is still that human connection that needs to be made. And that is some of the art. That's what we look for in salespeople is just sort of an innate curiosity and integrity. A lot of times you think of salespeople as being, you know, having, being very gregarious and needing a lot of huge personality. And fact is, is I think the folks that have, you know, a bit of modesty about themselves and are not that pushy sales profile actually do better. Like they're, they, they do take that consultative approach and try to have a real human connection and make it personal for the person. They're making a business decision to try to solve a business problem, but then they also want to know they're, they're taking some risk by doing business with us. And they want to know that as a company and as a person, the folks that they're doing business with have their back. And I think without that, that's you know, that's something you can't measure. And the, the more that a person can convey that, you know, in a sales role and quickly establish that human connection that, hey, yeah, we have a great product and great solution we're going to sell you, but we've also got your back and make sure you're going to get, uh, you're going to be successful in using it too. So when it's interesting, you, you talk about, you know, the kind of people you, you touched on the kind of people you look for. So when you're hiring salespeople, whether it's salespeople over the phone, or whether it's kind of like people out in the field, what are the primary things that you look for and I'm, I'm not talking about the things that are on the resume because i'm not talking about necessarily having a background in your area of technology perhaps or, or having a, a sales track record but what are the kind of key things that you look for that perhaps will give you a marker that this guy or this gal is going to be a success versus yeah this this person's just not going to fit yeah i for first and foremost for me it's integrity and are are they going to do what they say they're going to do and that's that starts with the entire process of engaging with us during the interview process. So do they come to the interview having done research? You say you, you want to work for us, but why? And prove it. Like, did you actually do your homework? Did you call other people to ask about us? Or do you have good questions? Are you actually prepared enough? You know, that sort of thing is indicative that they're not just going to say that they care, but they actually are turning that into action. And that's really what I'm looking for, or what are the things that you just can't hide? Like beyond the words that you say, it's what are the way you conduct yourself? Are there typos in your email? Did you send me an email ahead of time telling me you're looking forward to it? Did you send me an email after following up telling me maybe some of the details of something I mentioned and how you relate to that and how you um, see yourself above other candidates? Did you just come prepared with good questions? So integrity and sort of uh, that shows work ethic to me as well. It shows a competitive nature. I may intentionally say something that's controversial about a deal. And it's amazing how many people will go along with it, where I may tell a story that's completely fabricated about, yeah, how we did an end around with a partner and just to, to get a reaction on, on how they might react to that. And it's amazing to see how many people will just go along with the crowd and go along with what I'm saying, when I would really prefer that somebody would challenge me on those things. I'm not looking for just another person to go along with the group thinking, but I, I want somebody that has, has a brain. And, and can think critically for themselves and is curious. And yeah, 
and I would say grit is the other thing as well. How do you find grit? When you're interviewing somebody, how do you find it? How do you litmus test grit? Yeah, for me, well, there's a great book called Grit. And I, I love, I subscribe to the whole theory of grit, but it's essentially the combination of perseverance and passion. And the net of it is that anybody can get passionate about something for a short period of time, whether it's a fad diet or a new job or whatever it is, but it's the ability to stay persistent and persevere over the long haul that you're doing it like after the newness wears off, you're really in it to win. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's really hard to know about somebody until you're in the trenches with them and mm -hmm. you've experienced difficult times. But those are the things I, I look for stories and times in their life when they've demonstrated those qualities. Right. Now, that's, that's interesting. I remember crumbs. It must be what, 10, 12 years ago. Maybe, I know, must be wrong with that. I was doing a lot of work with Arcsight and I, I, I was working with their VP of uh, EMEA. And I remember he said to me that one of the things he looks for, and, it, and it's almost identical to what, you, what you're saying. He said, when he asks people why they're interested in joining Arcsight, he said, what I'm looking for is a reason that's going to be just as important to them on a wet Wednesday morning when they've got to get up at 4am and drive through the rain and the cold to get to a meeting as it is right now when they're interviewing with us. So uh, the, the reasons have to be kind of permanent rather than transient. And I'm wondering whether that's something that, that you also look for, simulate and have, to, and, and have historically in your other companies, either as a someone that's looking to join the company or considering joining the company, or when you've been hiring people to join you in the, in those organizations? Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, it's questions like, what do you do in your spare time? You know, did they, did they have, I love athletes. I love folks that com were competed at a high level in something. I actually don't care if it's a sport or chess or debate club, whatever it is, but you've, you've had to master a skill above just the average, the surface level, where you've, you've gone to that next level, because that demonstrates that perseverance, that you actually were passionate enough, where you got past the, the surface level knowledge of something to really achieve, work towards mastery. That's what I strive for. It's this, or what I look for. It's the same, you know, folks ask me a lot if, if I'm look, if I want to hire people with a Rolodex, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, I you know, given the alternative, I, I would take somebody that has a, a lot of connections. I, I would say, though, in the long run, those things could be short-lived. Who knows? You know, people retire, they change jobs, and those connections can can you know are never really as as active as anybody thinks they would like to think about their own network. And so, for me, it's it's about that process of how do I engage new customers? I'm more interested in that. Tell me about the. How did you establish those relationships to begin with? And how do you plan to establish more of them in the future? And I'm, I'm more curious. And I'm, I also am just genuinely curious about those things. Like for a top performer, what is their process? I love that. And uh, I love to, uh, to talk about those things. Yeah, no, absolutely. So just kind of switching gears just a touch. Have you had, I'm sure you have, situations where somebody has joined, they've not quite performed for whatever reason, right? How do you kind of turn someone who may have been great at interview and but hasn't quite performed when they've started in the first, you know, 30, 60, 90 days, whatever it is, and right. then either, you know, and, and decided to either, you know what, this isn't working, let's cut them loose. 
or invest time, resources in getting someone that maybe hasn't realized their potential to actually go ahead and do it? Yeah, it's, it's really easy to hire somebody and it's really hard to fire them. Right. And so we want to make sure we do our due diligence on the front end and yeah, and all the interview stuff we've talked about. But once they're on board, I, we track early indicators of success. So, you know, there are a lot of our onboard process, partly because we're just a small team is put on the individual, the new hire themselves, we intentionally uh, give them a list of people internally that we want them to meet with. And we leave it up to them to introduce themselves to those people and schedule those meetings. And so their willingness to jump in and do that and, and how quickly they do that is an indicator of immediate fit for us. And we start to look at those early indicators. And, and so that's one of them. And certainly the interactions that they have with those individuals is another indicator. And were they professional? Did they show up prepared? Did they ask good questions even in those things? Once they're on the job, are they still, are they really that person that was curious in the interview? Are they still curious after they have the job? And because if they do, and then they stumble along the way, then I have all the patience in the world and the willingness to jump in alongside them and help train and coach. If they are not who they pretended to be during the interview or said they were, then it truly wasn't a fit. And I feel like we give every opportunity for it to be an honest conversation during the interview process. So if, if you're if you're lying and you're putting yourself out there and we're saying this is what we want to hire and you're, you're just trying to puff it up, it eventually sorts itself out because if you're not the profile of what we're looking for, you know, you'll fall back into your your habits and uh, you'll into your real self. And if that's the case, then we'll just try to make an assessment and say, look, it, it just really isn't, doesn't seem like it's a fit based on, you know, who you really are seeming to be. And that point, it's actually, because I've had a few of those situations, unfortunately, and, and the individual agrees and they say, yeah, I, now I, I get it. Like, I wish that I, you know, heard what you were saying during the interview process and really didn't try to pretend to be something I'm not. And uh, they agreed it wasn't a fit. I would say more often than not, though, it's really just a matter of, of helping them, you know, with the guidance that they need to get them where they need to be. Right. Okay. No, that's great. Okay. So what, what kind of core pieces of advice would you give give somebody who is maybe kind of coming into sales leadership for the first time maybe they're a sales guy who's transitioning into sales leadership like you did or maybe they're they're striking out in a startup for the first time having been in the corporate world and are forming a, uh, a company and then having to kind of like bring in you know salespeople. you know what kind of key pieces of advice would you give somebody who's at the very beginning of their sales leadership journey. Yeah, it's a huge step. And you, you are now going from being an individual contributor to trying to motivate and, and build a team that will perform essentially on your behalf, right? It's uh, definitely working alongside these people, but but you can't micromanage everything. And so it's it starts with really hiring folks that that you feel like share the, the same qualities that, that you're trying to build. I, identifying culture, I think is huge. What's the culture of the team you're trying to build. Do you want to, I, I worked at Oracle for a number of years and well, it's not just me saying it, but there was actually an article written in Fast Company Magazine talking about Oracle's drive-by selling tactics. And, and they were a little bit heavy handed in, in some of the negotiating, but you can do that when you're Oracle. But is that the culture you want or do you want a collaborative, transparent, consultative approach with the customer? And there's any number, but I think being super clear about what you're trying to build and, and the type of team you want is, is really 
really helpful in, in taking that leap. And then, yeah, as a first line manager, a first time first line manager, you are part psychiatrist, <laughs> part counselor, part friend, part coworker. And then you also have to be part disciplinarian and accountability partner as well. I often equate it to like people wanting to go to the gym and, or get healthy. Some people will just naturally go on their own and be healthy and, and go four or five times a week. And it's great. Other people need a trainer and they need that accountability partner and somebody to help them with their form and just showing up every day. And that really is, I think, along the lines of, of a manager. And then, so yeah, it's, it's a lot, but I think it's exciting and fun. And you made the transition, if I'm not mistaken, from being a uh, individual contributor into being a manager at the same company, right? At Fishmate, right? So did you, were you on Monday managing the guys who, of whom you were a peer the previous Friday? I mean, did you literally step up to being, okay, guys, I know I was one of the boys. Now I'm leading this team. Is that something you had to do? And because that would strike me as, because I, I did that. that that's, I've had that challenge myself. And that seems to be a whole boatload of additional challenges get tossed in there when you're doing that. So how did you deal with that? Yeah, I had a, a really strong boss at the time. And we had a number of conversations about where do I want to go with my career? And he was very supportive in giving me opportunities, even in the current individual contributor role, to be able to share best practices with the team, maybe even run, I, I ran some of our team, weekly team calls and got exposure and started to, you know, share with the team they got to see me in a, in a little bit of a team lead role and condition them. And then it also gave me experience in running meetings and how to come prepared with an agenda and just really uh, set the intention for the day and for that meeting. And so that was great practice. But there was that point where it was like, okay, we're now going to make this shift. And yeah, and so there is the Monday that you come in and you're all of a sudden at the controls. And it doesn't really matter how much prep work the first time you are, you know, at the controls of a team and sort of working to lead that team, it feels different. And first thing I did was had one-on-ones with each person. And, you know, and just, again, I set out what, what I wanted to build in my team, some of the qualities that I believe are core to me and to the way I conduct business and to the way I would expect my team to conduct business and just got their buy-in on that. And I think that authenticity, if you can have that, again, it, it's like in sales with a customer, but just having that authenticity authenticity when you're connecting with folks and doing it in a one-on-one -on -one first is a great way to do it. Let's them sort of see who you really are and to buy into what you're, you're preaching, I guess. And how different is managing salespeople to managing sales managers who are in turn managing salespeople? Because you've done both. How different are those two roles? Yeah, vastly different. I think frontline management is is a challenging role, but it, it's one of the most important roles in the company, especially for an earlier stage startup, because a lot of times they are doing the interviewing. They are a big part of somebody's onboarding and training. And and then even in, you know, as they mature through their career, they're, they're a big part of helping them close and win deals. And then, but then they also have to help forecast the number up. And so, yeah, there's a lot going on in that role. When you are moving into a manager of managers, you know, it's easy to lose that connection. I think as a sales leader, one of the things that the business always looks to me for is the voice of the customer. 
And if you're starting to get layers in between you and the customer, it's easy to just get caught in spreadsheets all day and just forecasting. But to make an intention of sitting in and being present with the customer as often as possible, I think is, is huge. So you have that ear of the customer and you never lose the voice, the what's important to the customer. And you can convey that to the to the other members of the leadership team. That's great. And like we said at the outset, you know, you've had over 20 years of experience in sales and looking all the way, kind of uh, having a moment to reflect all the way back to the days on the uh, lobster boat. Is there anything kind of looking back that you think that you might have done differently or you would, you, you know, if you had your time again, you would change? Oh man, I would have made a few better golf shots maybe and tried to make a run as a professional golfer. <laughs> better gloves on the lobster boat maybe <laughs> yeah but yeah no it's i still love working with my hands and i have a lot of respect for crafts for people that are true craftsmen craftspeople and whether they're a welder or a lobsterman or, or working as a firefighter or whatever there's just for me i take a really am in awe at mastery of of a task that's that's what i geek out on and i try to it's what i try to get good at in my role is master my craft to the extent that i can i think one of the one of the true joys that i have not just in in podcasting but also in in my hedonzing career um, is that i get to talk to the very best people in in what they do and it, it's amazing just to be able to share time with the real kind of masters you know like stradivarius you know, built amazing violins and, you know, you can watch, you know, these amazing concert pianists on YouTube and whatever, right? And I just geek out on excellence, which is why it's great for me to be able to podcast with people like yourself and also on the headhunting side also to, you know, to work with with people there. So it's also, I, I definitely share that with you in just the joy of seeing a master in, in whatever it is they do, you know? So yeah, no, I, I, I totally, uh, I totally get that. Absolutely. So what's next? For Brian, what's uh, what's coming up in uh, 2021? Yeah, we're having an exciting time at Simulate, coming off the back of our second best quarter in company history last quarter, and really, you know, there's a lot of work to do right now toward the end of the year. It's always a busy time. That's our our tax season, if you will, in sales is is a Q4. But we are seeing a, a lot of great momentum in the breach and attack simulation space and and within Simulate. So we're investing and we're growing and we're hiring. And so we're going to be still with an eye, as, as I think our customers are, keeping a closer eye with the COVID situation, with other macroeconomic things. I think more and more companies are watching their budgets almost on a weekly basis. And we're doing the same thing. We want to make intelligent decisions, but we also want to grow and be in a great position when everything feels like we're, we're sort of getting back to whatever new normal is that we are, we've made the right bets and we've invested in the right places to then capitalize on it. So we're fortunate enough to have fantastic technology and a great leadership team and a great vision for the product. And now it's, it's on us as a sales and my marketing partner to bring that dream to life and, and uh, realize it in the market. Great stuff. And how can anyone get any more information about you or about Simulate? Yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn. There's a few Brian Stones out there and sometimes I get confused with others, but there's only one that's the chief revenue officer of Simulate and Simulate.com is the best way to, to get a hold of us. We would love to help you understand about breach and attack simulation. That's great stuff. And of course, I'll, we'll make sure that we share all the appropriate links in the show notes as well. Brian, thank you so much for spending time with us. This, this has been a 
a fantastic conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and I've certainly uh, learned an awful lot about, about scaling and motivating and hiring salespeople. So Brian Stem, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Simon. Cheers. Coming up next week on The Conference Room, I'll be talking to CEO and philanthropist Vina Jetty. At any company I've ever been involved in, the first thing I do is I set the expectation that this is everybody's company. It's not my company. It's not your company. We are a team. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com, where you can find all the show notes, plus links to the resources mentioned during the podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this, make sure you subscribe so that you're always the first to know when each episode is released. Also, please take the time to review the podcast so the more people who want to grow their businesses can find us. To talk about this or any other podcast, or in fact, anything business-related whatsoever, find me on Twitter, at Simon Lader, or you can find me by searching for Simon Lader or Silesia Academy on Facebook or on LinkedIn. I'm always open to a conversation. Thanks for listening to The Conference Room. Until next time, keep talking. Keep talking.